Hello, saints of God, bringing greetings from Freedom Temple Church of God in Christ, the Young Adults Department, along with our pastor, Pastor Billy Jamel Evans, in his vision of stretching forth for 2021, presenting this presentation that will be given by the Honorable, the Right Dr. Elder Reverend Derek Scott on stretching in our finances. I asked Derek Scott, because when it comes to entrepreneurship, it comes to capitalism, to fiscal outlook, uh, mirrored and married to faith, there's no other person that better uh, or more equipped to speak to this subject matter. And with that being said, I'm turning it over to the good elder, Derek Scott. Thank you so much, sir. I'm excited to be here, Elder Cody, with uh, the Freedom Temple family and Pastor Billy Jamel Evans. Certainly, we honor you, my friend, and uh, to all of you there. I'm a Chicago native, even though I currently live in the state of Michigan. I'm originally from Chicago, uh, so I'm excited to uh, be sharing with the young adults at Freedom Temple uh, in this stretching in our finances session. Now, listen, uh, Els, as Elder uh, Cody said, I am uh, Elder Derek Scott, and uh, I am going to talk a little bit about financial freedom and stretching in our finances and really approach this subject uh, from the from the perspective of things I wish someone would have taught me uh, before I became an adult uh, and how to get back on track. I'll start just with a, a, a short testimony here. Uh, my wife and I, we left Chicago and went off to the University of Michigan uh, where we both attended school. I had the opportunity to uh, major in architecture and music there uh, and then go back and get a, a master's degree in uh, urban and regional planning. And there were a lot of mistakes that we made along the way. There were a lot of things uh, that I wish someone would have told me ahead of time that would have kept us out of a lot of trouble. And I recall uh, that uh, we, you know, my first year of school, I went to school and I was working, I was employed at uh, UPS as a manager and I was making some pretty decent money, but no one taught me how to manage that money. No one taught me how to budget. Uh, no one taught me how to save. No one had taught me how to manage credit and essentially what I should be doing to build a future of wealth and build a future of value and equity for my family. And so tonight uh, or this afternoon, whatever time you're watching this, uh, my uh, sort of goal is to help you understand some of the, those roadblocks that young adults might face. Uh, and some of the tools and, and tricks and keys uh, to jumping off to a life of financial freedom. And this is going to stretch you. Uh, so we're talking about stretching. Uh, this is going to stretch you. Some of the, the things that I'm going to talk about, some of the ideas that I'm going to express to you, some of the biblical principles uh, that I'm going to outlay uh, for you are really going to stretch you. And I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, uh, you'll be the better for it. I have not worked a job in over 14 years. Uh, happy to say I've not worked a job in 14 years, but I've been in pursuit of purpose. And that has led uh, my wife and I to a life uh, that is debt free, uh, living in financial freedom. And hopefully these tools uh, that I will share with you will help you get there. All right. So what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about how to budget. That's first and foremost. We're going to talk about savings. We're going to talk about investing a little bit, not a lot, but just a little bit, scratch the surface of that. We're going to talk about debt, how much I hate it. By the end of this, you will learn how much I do not like debt, but we'll also talk about times when I actually do uh, embrace debt. Uh, we'll talk about credit. 
And then I'm going to share with you uh, what's called the storehouse principle. And I, I pray it's something that will bless uh, your life uh, the more uh, you learn about what it is. All right. So let's jump into this. Uh, biblical stewards. What does the word, what does the Bible say about being a biblical steward? Now, think about this. I want you to take a moment. Pause. I hope you're taking notes. I hope you have a pen, paper, something to take notes. I want you to pause for a moment and really think about this. When you think about scriptures in the Bible, stories in the Bible, what are things that come to mind when you think about biblical stewardship? Biblical stewardship, right? Uh, there are a lot of scriptures that we can think about on giving. There's a lot of scriptures. You know, we, we know Malachi uh, talks about the tithe. Uh, we, we've heard scriptures about sowing and reaping. Uh, but what does the Bible say about biblical stewardship? Like the Bible calls us to be biblical stewards. What I want you to do is go through this exercise. I'm not going to tell you, but I want you to go home uh, after this. And I want you to, to spend some time spending some time in the word looking for stories of biblical stewardship uh, in the word of God. And the reason I'm not going to tell you and I want to send you on a journey to find them is because as you look for them and as you search for them, you begin to understand that there are some characters in the Bible that uh, are not the most preached over the pulpit on Sunday. But these are characters that will really help us understand how to manage our financial assets and become stewards. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a hint and I'll give you uh, one for free. Uh, the one that comes to mind is the parable of the talents. Uh, the, the Bible talks about the par parable of the talents in three of the Gospels. And it says that uh, the master comes and he has three servants uh, that he gives talents to. Now, one one particular book of the gospel records it as three servants. Another book uh, records the parable as 10 servants. And it says that he gives them talents according to their several ability. He gives them money. He gives them gifts. He gives them talent according to their several abilities. Now, we know about the three. We oftentimes hear about the three. There was one who received one talent, one who received three talents and one who received five talents. The one who received five talents when the master came back, he gave them 10 and the master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. Uh, the one who had three talents, he had doubled his. He gave them back six and the master says, well done. You've done well with what I've given you. But watch this. The one who had one talent, he took what he had, the very little that he had, and he did nothing with it. He essentially squandered it. He he buried it. He did, he buried it in the ground and said, "I knew my master was hard." And so when he returned, you know, I really, uh, you know, I really didn't do much, right? I just I just didn't. I was lazy. And so the the challenge here, when the master, uh, you know, hears this from him, he rebukes him and says, "You you slothful servant. At the very least, you could have put my money to usury." Or you could have put my money to the exchangers. And what he was saying is you could have put my money in the, at the very least in a bank account so that it could have drawn interest. So that at the very least, when I came back, I would have got interest on the money that I had. Right. And so the, the, the principle of that story is not necessarily about um, those who had much. It's about doing what you can with the little that you have and being a steward over the very little that you have. And now watch this. It says that he takes from the one who had one and he gives it to the one who had 10. And he he takes the very little that he has. And he says to whom 
much is given, much is required, and to whom has little, even the little that he has will be taken away from him. So we've heard this saying that the poor stay poor while the rich get rich. That's a biblical principle that those who have are those who will continue to get rich, those who will continue to gain assets, those who will continue to flourish, those who will continue to be trusted with goods because they have proven to be good stewards uh, with what they have. And so what I don't want you to do is walk away after this session, not understanding what it means to be a good steward, what it means uh, to manage your finances, even if you only have a little bit, right? Even if you're the, the guy who only has one, you have something. Now, there's one other caveat to that story I want to highlight because in one story, it says that there were actually 10 servants. Three showed up to present to the master. We give a lot of grief to the guy who showed up with the one credit uh, or with the one talent, right? Who buried it in the sand. But the reality is at least he showed up. Because in another parable, it says that there were actually 10 and out of the 10, only three show up at the reckoning of their master to return what was given. So that means the other seven didn't do anything like they went away. They hid. They ran. They squandered it. They didn't even have the one. Right. So regardless of where you're at, I want you not to be the seven. You can be the one uh, who had one talent, but just don't bury it in the sand. We're going to talk about what to do with it. And hopefully uh, that helps you get on your way. Uh, to a better life of stewardship. So let's start here. We're going to talk about budgets. We're going to start talk about budgets. What is a budget? All right. Now, this may be very uh, rudimentary for some people and for others, you need this lesson in life. Right. So regardless of where you are, whether you have a budget, whether you don't, I, I, I think you'll get something out of this. So the first thing to do is to start by building a budget. You need a budget. In very simplest terms, a budget is uh, a, a record of your income and your expenses. What's the total amount of money that you have coming in every month? And what's the total amount of money that you have going out every month? Now, oftentimes I ask people, I say, do you have a budget? And they say, yes. And I say, okay, great. That's good. You have a budget. Can I see your budget? Well, it's in my head. Well, then you don't have a budget. I promise you don't have a budget. So, if it's in your head or you kind of know like, well, I know what I spend every month. I know how much I make. I make X amount of dollars and I know my, my bills. Like that's, that's fine. That's great. But you don't have a budget unless you've written it. Right. Right. Word in Haggai says, write the vision and make it plain. Your budget is your financial vision for your life. Your budget is your financial vision for your life. It paints a picture of not only where you're going, but it paints the picture of where you've been. You're able to look at your budget and then go back and say, hey, did I actually do all the things I said I was going to do with my money? Did I make what I was going to make? Did I spend on what I said I was going to spend on? How uh, prudent and how uh, financially solvent was I with the resources that I had? And so if you don't, if you're not good with using things like Microsoft Excel, which is where I track my budget, I use Excel spreadsheets, Google Sheets. I'm a, I'm a Google fan uh, with Google Docs. And so I use Google Sheets. But you may not be really great with Google Sheets or an Excel document. That's fine. There are apps that are out there that will help you with this. So there are apps like TurboTax has a budgeting tool app that you can use throughout the year. It allows you to take pictures of receipts and upload things as you uh, kind of make purchases throughout the year, record mileage and other things like that. 
There's a Intuit has a Mint app. This is uh, one that I highly recommend, the Mint app. Um, out of these three that are up here, these are just sort of uh, suggestions uh, or examples, not necessarily recommendations. Uh, but the Mint app, I really do recommend. I highly recommend that one because it's really simple to use. Uh, you can you, you can put it on, download it on your phone. There's a web version of it. Uh, but what it allows you to do is to track your spending and, and then it'll track it across categories to help you see spending patterns. So you can put your budget in and then you can track against that budget to see how you're doing each month, month over uh, month, week over week, and, and sort of track where you're spending your money. You can also put uh, and sync your bank accounts to it. Now, I know there are folks, there's some individuals, uh, typically, this is my young adult crowd, so typically young adults don't have challenge with this. Most most times it's my seniors. Uh, but as a young adult, hopefully you, you feel comfortable with the security settings and all of those things that your information will be secure. Uh, and so you, know, you can link your sync your bank accounts to the Mint app. You can also sync things like your student loan account. You can sync your your car note uh, account. You can sync uh, your your bills and things like that. Uh, your your T-Mobile or your Comcast, your Verizon bill, AT and T or whatever. And it'll allow you to track all of those things, and it will alert you of due dates. You can set up due dates and things like that. These type of tools will help you become better managers of your finances, right? So if you're someone who typically like misses a due date, um, you kind of forget that the first of the month was coming or the, the 15th was coming. The app ha actually has some things that'll help, you know, send you some reminders and remind you that you've got a due date and also help you if you want to set up your automatic payments. You, you've got a one stop shop where you can kind of set them up and link it from your bank account so that that it's done. And it tracks all of your balances uh, and something called assets and liabilities. Uh, we'll talk about a little bit more about that in a moment, uh, but it'll track all of those things for you and help you get a really good financial picture of where you are. So at any given time, you can pull up your phone and see how you're doing uh, compared to uh, your budget. And then there's a QuickBooks app that's similar and does the same uh, but for those of you, uh, my entrepreneurs that um, are running businesses, you're self-employed, you're starting businesses, I would encourage you to use something a little bit more robust like the QuickBooks app, which will allow you to sort of track your finances. That's if you don't have an accountant or somebody that's helping you with that. Uh, that's a great way for, you know, at a, at a cheap cost, someone who's running a business to be able to have access to uh, information. And as you invoice people, it'll actually track, you know, your invoicing. So if you're sending people, you know, um, invoices for services that you're doing. You do hair, uh, you, you know, you do um, videos, you you edit, you know, whatever your, your gig is, right? You've got a tool that will help you track and then spit out, uh, as you can kind of see on this image on the screen, a profit and loss statement that tells you this is my income, this is my expenses, how, how am I doing? Uh, so I have this app on my phone, it's great, it's amazing. Uh, I use the, the Intuit QuickBooks one and I can see all of my business stuff uh, on there for my, my um, activity that I'm doing. And I'm able to reconcile uh, all of my accounts uh, at the end of the month or at the end of the week, however frequently I want to do that. So again, want you to have a budget, want you to understand what your income is, what your expenses are and start to work through that. Now for income, income is any type of money or earnings that you have coming in, right? That's, I think that's fairly simple. It's salary or wages that you make, hourly wages that you make from employment. Uh, 
any type of consulting income that you get or contracting in income. Maybe you drive Uber, you, you know, uh, do uh, Grubhub or you know Uber Eats or something like that uh, on the weekend, right? Any type of income you want to show all of your income on your budget. Any type of investment income that you have. So maybe you you've got a Robinhood app or you, you invest in stocks. Um, a good way, a good rule of thumb is you know if that money's not hitting your account, like you're not cashing out, I wouldn't necessarily count that as income. Um, I would count income as cash that you've sort of got coming in. Uh, on a pr pretty consistent basis that's hitting your bank account. And then on the expenses side, you want to itemize all the expenses that you have. Now, I put a rule up here, sort of, um, this is a rule of thumb uh, that I think is sort of a baseline. Like, I don't think this is like an all-in rule. This is like a, at a minimum, this is how I think uh, you should look at managing your finances. And from a biblical principle, uh, this is, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about how important these are biblically. So uh, the first thing on your expense line item is tithing, right? So if you are not tithing, uh, you're robbing God. And anybody who robs God, um, you know, God bless you. Uh, so you should be a tither. Now, I'm not going to get into Old Testament law versus New Testament law. Uh, tithing is a principle. It really is a principle. And tithing is even pre-laws, before the law. Uh, Melchizedek gave tithes of all to Abraham, right, even before the law. And so we understand that the tithe, the tenth of anything that comes in is a principle uh, that allows you to be eligible for God to rebuke the devourer from touching the rest of the 90 percent. Right. So I've heard people say, well, the 10 percent belongs to God. And I say, well, 100 percent belongs to God. Uh, he only requires that we give a 10, a tenth back to him. Uh, sort of as a way to, to honor him with uh, our increase and with our substance. And then he allows the rest of it to flourish. So I'd encourage you not to uh, blow on that 10%. Even if you say, hey, look, Elder Scott, like I hear you. That sounds good. I make a thousand bucks. I made a thousand bucks. My rent was exactly a thousand bucks. I would have loved to give God a hundred dollars out of that thousand. But if I didn't pay my rent, uh, I was going to get evicted. So like, I don't know how you justify me giving money to the church when I'm getting ready to be uh, evicted and my rent is due. It's exactly a thousand dollars. I couldn't do the hundred. I would argue with you that you're probably still going to be at risk of something going wrong, evicted or something. Uh, if you don't learn how to tie I will never forget uh, making a lot of money as an undergrad student at the University of Michigan. I was on full tuition scholarship. I was a Gates scholar. Uh, so I didn't have any tuition. I really didn't have any expenses. Um, I made good money as a supervisor, as a manager at UPS. And I remember I wasn't tithing, uh, you know, not at least not consistently. I was sort of tithing as, as, you know, as, as I went, you know, sort of like I was on a pay as you go plan, uh, with God. And so, uh, I was trying to tithe, but I wasn't consistent. And I just remember, uh, even after hearing a message about tithing, I still didn't get consistent with it. And my money was just running like water. Like literally running like water. It was like I was putting my money into a pocket with holes. Like, you know, the tire would blow out on the car. I get pulled over and get a ticket and it's, you know, like $400 or something. Some, something stupid. Like it just didn't make sense. And it was like, why is all this stuff happening to me? And the Lord was like, because you don't tithe. Like I can't rebuke the devourer from eating uh, your income because you're not eligible. You don't tithe. And the moment I started tithing was the moment that I realized like, wow, 
um, God really will like stretch a dollar and make uh, a dollar go a very, very long way because of the principle of tithing. There's a lot more of the benefits that come with it, but I'm just going to leave it there that the tithe is very, very important. Uh, and it's a biblical principle that if you work it, it protects uh, every other investment that you have and makes you eligible uh, for all of these things that I'm going to talk about uh, in a moment here. Um, after you give the Lord 10 percent, then I say give 10 percent to yourself. Pay yourself. You should put 10 percent into a savings. Now, by pay yourself, I don't mean like this is your uh, like date night money or this is your entertainment or go out, hang out with friends. Like This is literally savings. And we're going to talk about types of savings here in a moment. But this is your savings. This is money you should be putting away to save. Uh, everyone should have an emergency fund that's equal to roughly six months of your monthly income. So in the event that something happens, you have a rainy day fund that's at least six months of your monthly income. Now, there's some people that say, uh, well, you should have at least a thousand dollars in a savings account. Well, that's kind of subjective because a thousand dollars in Chicago is different than a thousand dollars in Detroit uh, or a thousand dollars in San Francisco uh, is different than having a thousand dollars in, uh, you know, Crete, Illinois, for example. Right. So. Uh, the cost of living in different places are different and a thousand dollars may go, go a lot longer in some places than others. And so I use uh, six months of income uh, as sort of you want to start to build your savings until you get to a point where you have at least six months of your monthly income saved up. So if you make three thousand dollars a month, uh, a good savings account, a good goal would be to get to eighteen thousand six times three, eighteen thousand. Uh, dollars in savings. So that way, if you lose a job, if something happens, right, you have six months of income that's almost like you didn't lose your job. So you got six months to sort of replace that income uh, and give yourself time to find a, a, a new opportunity, uh, as it may be. And then 10% uh, for your storehouse. And I'm going to talk about the storehouse in a bit here. So I want you to hold that thought, uh, but 10% for your storehouse. And then the other 70%, that's what you're going to live off of. So 30% off the top, like it's gone. It like it never existed. It's not even there. Like don't, don't even pay attention to it. Again, as we talk about stretching in our finances, this is an area where like if this is a habit that you don't do, it's going to stretch you to start to practice this particular habit of taking 30% off the top and then living off the other 70%, not even thinking that the 30% exists, like it doesn't, it's gone, it's invisible money. All right, now, um, let's look at a sample budget and we're gonna talk about how to manage that 70%. So here's a sample budget. I'm gonna use that number of $3,000 here again. Let's say your income is $3,000 a month and then uh, let's say you have a side hustle because everybody uh, today is an entrepreneur, everybody has some type of side hustle. Um, everybody's doing something. Let's say your monthly uh, income is three thousand plus your side hustle of five hundred a month. Your total income is three thousand dollars. Now, somebody's looking at that and you're like, Elder Scott, I thought you were a really smart guy. Um, three thousand plus five hundred is thirty five hundred, but you have three thousand up there. That's intentional. Your side hustle is not consistent income. Right. And so that's income that you you may see one month and the next month. You may not see it. It's not consistent. So you should you should know that it's there. 
but you should not count that as a part of your consistent income in your budget, right? That's sort of your cushion. Um, that's the money that you're going to put away into a savings. You're going to put that away into a business account so that you can continue to invest back into your business. You're not going to spend that. You're not going to uh, use that toward any of the expenditures, the fixed expenditures you have. But that's money you should be putting away. You should have a totally separate savings account or business account that you put your side hustle money into. So a good example is as a as a minister, as a preacher, when I go out to minister, anytime anybody invites me out and I get an honorarium or I get an offering, uh, I don't put that money into my general account. I actually have a ministry account that I put all of that money into. Uh, and so I deposit into a ministry account. And that way, when I go out to a service and I'm given an offering, I give out of that account. Or if I have a report, I give out of that account as an elder. Uh, I pay my national credentials. I pay other reports to my jurisdiction and to my local church and things like that. Uh, or if I'm in a service and I feel led to give, I'll pay out of that ministry account, right? I'll sow out of that ministry account. And so I, I have a revenue stream that goes back to invest into uh, that particular area uh, that I also reaped uh, that uh, particular resource from. So same thing with your side hustle, with your business, whatever that is. Um, you should use that income to reinvest back into your business. All right. So $3,000 is your total income. Now let's look at the expenses again, right off the top, your tides is 10%. Now we will tithe off of the total income. So we're not tithing off the 3000. We're going to tithe off the third, the, the 500, whatever that number is um, off the total amount. All right. So we're going to tithe off the total amount. We're going to store house off the total amount. We're going to do savings off the top total amount. Now, I want to talk about managing the 70%. So within the 70%, there are a few rules that I want you to stick with. Uh, two are really important. The first rule is that no more than 30% of your housing costs uh, your, your should, should be um, from your income. So you should be spending no more than 30% of your total income, your total monthly income on housing costs. Anything above that is considered uh, severely cost burden for housing. So HUD, which is a housing and urban development a federal organization that sort of oversees the housing for our country says that anybody who spends more than 30% of their income on housing, you are significantly cost burden. Um, that's way too much money. So as an example, think about right now, anybody who pays rent or you have a mortgage and think about how much of your monthly income you're paying toward that rent. If it's more than 30%, then you are significantly cost burden. Now, some of you may say, well, hey, I only make, like if I make $3,000 a month, that's $900 toward my housing costs. So you're saying my rent and my housing costs in total should be $900. And my response would be yes. And so you say, well, I can't find anything nice for $900. Um, the best I can do is $1,500. And I would say, this is where you have to stretch now your finances. So you have to live as, as um, um, you know, the, the financial guru says all the time, you have to live today like no other so you can live tomorrow like no other. So you have to make some sacrifices today uh, to be a good financial steward so that you can grow your resources and capacity to live tomorrow uh, like you really want to live. So you may have to sacrifice the $1,500 a month, uh, you know, uh, loft or whatever it is that you live in and now look for an option 
or look for something that gets you under that 30% so that you can start to manage your finances a little better. So if you feel like your finances are squeezed in there tight, it's because you're spending way more on housing than you should be. Um, you've got your utility costs, you've got your gas costs, you've got groceries. Groceries are really high. That's usually a big part of your budget. You've got your phone bill, you've got insurances, you've got car insurance, you've got uh, health insurance, you've got uh, a car note. And there's a rule for car notes and car calls where I say that no more than 8% of your income should be spent on uh, car costs. So a car note as well as insurance. So you should be, you should not be spending more than eight, no more than 10% on a car. And I'm going to talk about that in a second uh, as well when we talk about debt. Uh, because I actually don't think you should have a car note. And we'll talk about how to get rid of your car note. Um, you should not have a car note. You should not be paying a monthly car note, um, which would also lower your insurance rate if you're not, uh, if you don't have debt on your vehicle. And so I'll talk about that in a second. So these are some rules, uh, but you have other expenses. This is not an exhaustive list. There are other expenses that you have uh, that you should list in your budget, all of your expenses. Everything should be listed. There's nothing that you should leave out. Um, the very minute detail of things that you pay for, you want to track that. And that's why those apps and things like that are very important because it'll show you where uh, like your uh, monthly housing uh, cleaning supplies, right? You spend $40 a month on housing supplies, toilet tissue and toilet paper and you know um, dish liquid and stuff like that. All of those things, you want to have a budget for it. And then what you do, once you have a budget is you become very, very uh, sort of detailed about your spending and say, hey, if it's not in the budget, I'm not spending it. Right. So now when you pull out your card, you pull out your debit card and you say, "Hey, I'm going to swipe it. You should ask yourself, is it in the budget? And if it's not, put your card away uh, before you spend that money. Now say, hey, is that in the budget? Nope. So my wife and I have this thing. Uh, we every year at the top of the year we sit down and we put together our full budget for the entire year. So we look at the budget uh, and what we did in the previous year. And we, we, we monitor our budget throughout the year, every month and we look at how we're doing. And my wife used to give me a hard time because I'd, I'd you know, come in after the end of, a, end of a month and I'd be like, uh, babe, we need to talk. Uh, the grocery budget is X hundred dollars a month and you was $200 over budget last week. Uh, you know, like what's going on? Like, can we, can we kind of stay under the budget? And then she would remind me like, you got seven kids and they all hungry and you want to eat too. So either you find more money for the budget or you don't eat. And so those were hard decisions we had to start to make was either find more money for the budget or, uh, get creative with how we eat. Uh, so you, if it's not in the budget, then don't spend it. Uh, that's a good rule to just continue to follow. All right. So now that we talked about budgeting, those are the basic budgeting things. Let's talk about savings in particular, that 10% savings. Right, what do you do with that savings? Now, if you don't have a checking and a savings account, then you need to go open a checkings and a savings account. Right. So um, I don't want you going to the check cashing place and paying fees. I don't want you going to the liquor store to cash your check. I don't want you. Uh, using payday loan services. I don't want you using cash advances. Stay away from those uh, for a myriad of reasons. We're going to talk about debt and we're going to talk about why those type of places are not your friend. But I want you to stay away from those. Um, I want you to get a savings account 
and I want you to have multiple accounts. I want you to not just have one account, but I want you to have uh, different accounts that you sort of manage your funds out of. So you should have a checking account uh, that you have a debit card attached to that you transact out of, and then you should have a savings account. Um, I mentioned the storehouse. You should have a storehouse account. And I'm going to talk about that again in a minute, but that's an account that you should hide from yourself. Put it somewhere really, really hard and difficult for you to touch that money. Uh, there are a lot of online banks that are FDIC insured, which simply means the Federal Depository insures you uh, up to $250,000 of your deposits. Uh, so it's okay to put your money in anything that's FDIC assured, uh, even if it's online, doesn't have a physical branch, and then don't link it to any of your accounts so you can transfer money from it, right? Someplace where you can put money into it, let it go into an abyss, like disappear, it's not there. And then uh, at the time, the right time, uh, it'll be there, it'll always be there. But there are other types of savings accounts other than just a basic savings account, which has the lowest interest rate. Um, there's what's called a certificate of deposit or CD, which pays an interest rate. You can put money into a CD. It's really simple. You just go to the bank and you say, hey, I want to open up a CD or you go online and, and open up a CD, a certificate of deposit. And usually there are specials. Like if you have a CD for 12 months, as long as you leave your money in there for 12 months, you get a special interest rate. Right? So you can park your cash in an account and watch it earn 1%, 2%, 3 4 6% interest. Uh, I opened up a CD, uh, a special CD like last year with money that I didn't plan to touch for like three years. Um, and so they were offering a special three year CD uh, at a 6% interest rate. And I was like, well, hey, that sounds good to me. Like it's put my money that I don't intend to touch uh, into a CD for six, for three years to get 6% of my money. I'm making money just for loaning the bank my money. Uh, same thing with a money market account. It's uh, much of the same. It allows you to put your money into an account uh, that the bank it's basically sort of borrowing your money from you. They're paying you to borrow your money uh, and lend it to the market and uh, you get a return on that money. And then other types of savings are like investment accounts. So you may have a stock account or in what's called an IRA, in a, a retirement account, uh, which will allow you to do an investment into a retirement account uh, and allow, or put savings into an retirement, re retirement account and then invest that money. Uh, so those are different types of savings accounts. Any of those uh, types of accounts are fine. It's okay for you to put money into those types of savings. Uh, there's low risk to it. It's, uh, it's not like investing for with stocks um, that, that have a high risk. Um, uh, the, if you do put your money into an IRA, um, you can you know invest in the stock market, but there's also safer investments that have lower risk and you know, like mutual funds and things that have a lower return. So those are all things uh, that you should consider with that 10% uh, that you're saving to put that money into something that's uh, growing interest. All right, now I wanna talk about debt because I've only got about uh, five or 10 more minutes here and I wanna really dig into debt with you. So uh, there's a scripture that I use to talk about debt. It's Proverbs 22 and seven. We often uh, say that the uh, lender is, or the, the borrower is slave to the lender. And that comes from the scripture uh, in Proverbs that says, the rich ruleth over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. The borrower is servant to the lender. So that means if someone lends to you, you serve them, uh, you become in debt to them. Uh, so a mortgage, for example, that you put on your house, the word mort means debt. I mean, means dead, it means to die. 
uh, gauge is the activity of um, being obligated to someone until you die. Uh, so your mortgage literally means you're obligated to the bank unto death. Um, so you become slave to the bank. You go to work every day because you're like, ah, I got to pay my car note. Uh, I got to pay my bank. I got to pay the mortgage. Uh, I got to pay my student loan. Right. You're a slave. You go and work. You slave so that you can pay the lender. Right. And I, we have to move away from uh, the slave uh, mentality. Right. We have to move to where we are the rich and we rule over the poor where the word says that we would be the lender and not the borrower. So I want you to think of debt in a very, very negative way. I want you to think of that in a very, very negative way, um, in a very, very negative way. Here's why. Here's how loans work. So before you go out and say, hey, I want to buy a car um, and I'm going to take out a loan, I'm going to go to the bank. I want you to pause. I want you to stop. And I want you to think before you go buy that car or before you go make any type of purchase where you're, you're going to take out a loan or take out credit for it, because this is how it works. There's three things that you should think about. There's principal, which is the original amount that you're borrowing. That's the amount of the loan. There's interest, which is the amount that you're going to pay for borrowing that money. And then there's equity, which is the amount of value in that asset that you now own, less the amount of debt that you own. There are some assets that you have negative equity in, which means that it's a negative asset. Like it actually does not benefit you to own it. You actually owe for on owning that asset. Cars are such type of assets. And so this is how sort of how that works. Let's say you go out to get a car loan. The numbers I put up here is let's say you go buy it. Let's call it a brand new car. It's not used as brand new. It's $15,000 car. And uh, let's say your credit is average. So let's say you get, you're able to get a 13% interest rate. Now, if you don't have good credit, let's say you're new, you've never purchased anything. You've never, you, you don't really have established credit. Um, now you're going to get a higher interest rate somewhere around 20, 22, 23%, uh, which means that your car payment is going to be really high. And most of your payment uh, is going to go towards interest and not toward the actual principal. So th using this example, $15,000 at 13% interest would give you a monthly payment of $341 a month. This is a five-year uh, uh, car note, so 60-month term. And so over the, the course of those 60 months, paying $341 a month, you're going to pay a total of $20,477, which means that you'll pay the original $15,000 you paid for the car plus an additional $5,400. So you'll pay another third of a vehicle and just uh, financing costs for the for the fee. Now, if that's not enough to make you mad, this should definitely make you angry, is that after the first year, cars depreciate. Like they depreciate really fast. So the minute you buy the $15,000 car, you drive it off the lot, by the end of the year, that car is now worth $10,900 roughly. Um, and that's being generous. So this is actually really conservative. However, after paying the $341.30 a month, your loan balance is going to be 12721 at the end of that year, which means that if you take the value of the car less the amount you owe, you actually have negative equity in that vehicle. You actually owe money. So when you hear somebody say they're upside down on the loan, that's what they mean. They're upside down on the loan. They, they actually owe money uh, because the car is worth less than the amount of money that they actually owe. By year three, you're still upside down. 
typically it's not until you get on to the last sort of uh, two years of the term, last year of the term that really you're paying down the principal. And now at the end of five years, you actually have the complete value of the car. So what I'd argue is save money, get cash and go buy something that you can ride until the wheels fall off, literally. So go, you know, if you, you get a, let's say you get a refund check and you get $4,000 in a refund, $5,000. Um, take that $5,000, don't use it as a down payment on a $20,000, $30,000 car just because the bank will finance you. Pay $5,000 for a car uh, that's used, maybe it's got $100,000 100, miles on it, but ride the thing until the wheels fall off. And then pay yourself a car note for three years. Whatever you would have paid in a car note, take what you were saying, take the car note that you would have paid, the 341.30, pay yourself that, for three years. After three years of paying yourself that amount of money uh, for a car note, you will actually wind up having roughly $12,000 uh, if you put that in an interest bearing account, uh, giving yourself about 3% interest. So now after three years, you can take that $12,000, you can go upgrade your car and pay $12,000 in cash for a car. You can get a pretty decent ride and then you do that again. Right. And you keep doing that until you can keep upgrading your car. Hey, right? maybe you trade in the old one and you get cash for that one. Maybe that car is worth twenty six hundred dollars. You add that to the twelve thousand you've got. And now you can actually pay cash for the fifteen thousand dollar car in three years as opposed to trying to finance it over five. Right. So we should look at debt differently and say, I don't want to buy anything with debt. I don't want to pay for anything with debt. I want to finance uh, everything I can with cash. If I don't have the money to buy it, then I'm going to try to live within my means on this. Um, as I move quickly uh, with the last few minutes that I have, I want to talk about credit. So from the perspective of credit, there's three different credit bureaus. There is uh, TransUnion, there's Experian, and there's Equifax. These are all credit bureaus that uh, will help you monitor your credit. Uh, you can get a free account with any of these folks. Uh, or uh, as you say, you can check your credit report for free with any of these. And then to ongoing monitor it, you have to pay a monthly fee. But you should know what your credit score is. There's uh, websites like Credit Karma that'll give you a FICO score uh, and other free websites like that. Um, those are fine, but typically the best thing to do is know what's on your credit report. Um, I don't have a lot of time to dig into credit, but credit is important because credit determines the cost you pay for things. So you want to make sure that you're not taking on uh, debt and that your debt doesn't exceed uh, ratios that uh, make your credit go up. Uh, your credit score is the highest percentage of your credit score. Thirty five percent of it is based on uh, your credit usage. So how much credit you actually have uh, versus how much you're using. So let's use, for example, you have a credit card with a thousand dollar limit on it. If you're using all thousand of it, that's a thousand dollar uh, that's 100% usage. You want to be under 35%, which means if you got a $1,000 limit, you want to be under $350. Uh, I would even say pay off that card at the end of every month so you're not paying interest on that. Um, don't take on credit cards. So let me just say that. Don't take on credit cards. So Derek, do you have credit cards in your pocket? Yes, I actually have a few credit cards, um, but I don't use them to make purchases that I don't have cash for. The only time I use my credit card is to pay for things that I would have paid for cash. And then I pay off that credit card at the end of the month so that I can reap all the benefits of the points and all the benefits of sort of uh, being a card member. 
uh, but I don't carry those balances from month to month and I don't pay interest. So I'll give you an example. Last year, I spent a crap load of money with American Express on my Amex card. I charged it up for every single purchase, groceries, you know, gas, et cetera, et cetera. But every uh, week or every two weeks or so, I, I paid off the total amount that was charged and I definitely paid it off before the, the statement date came out. So that way, once the statement posted to my credit report, it showed that I have a zero balance uh, and it makes my credit score look really, really uh, amazing as a result of paying that credit down. So credit is OK to use if you're managing it uh, from, with, with cash. Um, lastly, I want to talk about the storehouse principle, which uh, is this is a book that I want to encourage you to get. I don't have a time to, to go into detail and talk extensively about this, uh, but you can't afford to not have this book. It's going to talk a little bit more about debt, uh, a lot more about debt. And the storehouse principle goes back to what I talked about earlier, the 10 percent and putting that away. In 2011, my wife and I moved back to Ann Arbor, Michigan uh, in November of 2011. We sat down, we tallied up all of our bills, and we realized that between the two of us, we had over $120,000 in debt, student loans and you know other you know, car note loans and all that stuff. And we put together a five-year plan to eliminate all the debt after we read the book, The Storehouse Principle. And we started putting away in a storehouse. We actually didn't have a, a, a ton of money. We wasn't making a lot at that time. We were making a decent amount to make ends meet, uh, but we stuck to the principle. And the principle, what it says is that in Deuteronomy 28 and 8, we know in the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy, it talks a lot about uh, you will, will be blessed in the city, blessed in the field, blessed coming in, blessed going out. We know all of those. We quote those scriptures in church. But the eighth verse is the most important because it says in order for you to be eligible for all of those blessings, it says that the Lord will command those blessings upon you in your storehouse. If you don't have a storehouse, he doesn't have a place to command those blessings. So the storehouse is very important. It's in the Old Testament, the storehouse, uh, the, 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 the folks were required to leave a certain portion of their land for gleaning. They, they couldn't eat of that land. They would grow crops, but they had to leave a corner of the land that was for the widow, the stranger, and the person who was sort of coming through the, the land, the orphan, so they could always glean off of the land. And whatever was left, they would put it into the storehouse and they would store it. Uh, for a time in which uh, it could be used. And the Lord would command blessings upon the storehouse to say that there's always meat in my house. There's always something to meet the needs of people, to meet the needs of the communities and places. And so if you don't have a storehouse, God doesn't have a place to command the blessing. And so this this book blessed our life uh, as we were going through our five-year plan to eliminate $120,000 in debt. And uh, miraculously in a you know, just based on these biblical principles, the Lord helped us eliminate all of our debt in two and a half years, $120,000 in debt uh, gone. And so since then, we have not looked back as of 2014. We don't touch that. We don't like that. Uh, we don't finance things with that. We've done a lot of other things. Uh, we all buy cars, we do all that stuff, but we don't mess with that. And the Lord has allowed us to compound um, the things that we've been able to do uh, in our in our life as a result of it. So I encourage you, go get the book, Storehouse Principal, Al John Van Crouch. And then my parting thought to you is this, what is your purpose? Um, what are you supposed to be doing in life, right? So don't go chasing dollars, don't work a job. You heard me say the last 14 years, I've not worked a job. Uh, I pursue purpose. I serve as the CEO of a wonderful organization uh, doing some development work and we have uh, a little over uh, $42 million on our balance sheet. And uh, we built that organization with the same principles. I have no debt on my balance sheet. 
no debt on my organizational balance sheet. I do use debt to leverage debt for real estate projects, but for my organization, we don't have debt on the balance sheet. So there are times where debt does make sense when you're leveraging it for, for net positive assets, but we have not built an organization off of debt. Uh, we have a cash balance sheet. And so what is your purpose though? Because in pursuing my purpose is what allowed us to build that, right? And there were times where we were poor, we were homeless, we were doing things uh, that didn't look so great so that we could get to where we are. But Jeremiah 29 and seven says, seek the peace of the place where I've caused you to be led captive and pray to God for the peace of it. For as it prospers, so shall you prosper. So if you want to prosper, God says, seek the peace of the place where you are now. What is the purpose where you are now? What is God calling you to do now? And if you can learn what you're supposed to be doing now, then God will allow you to start using your finances in a way that you start to effectuate what you're called to do, what you're supposed to be doing. And you're not looking for a job. You're not looking for a nine to five because it pays money, but you're looking to do what it is that you're called to do. And that's going to help you move into your purpose and then begin to do some stuff. All right. So I'm way over my time, like three minutes over my time that I was given. But I hope that this has been helpful to you. And I encourage you again to go back, uh, look through the word and look for examples of financial stewardship. And I pray uh, that some of these items will help you grow a little bit further in your journey and stretch you in your finances. And I pray that it will help you uh, continue to be great stewards over what God has given you. Again, I thank you, uh, Elder Cody. I forgive me this opportunity. Pastor uh, Evans, uh, always a pleasure, my good brother, and an honor uh, to be with you. That's all I have for you. Thanks. Follow Derek. You heard him say that man is, is a financial guru. We're looking at the next Jeff Bezos. Thank you, brother, so much. Uh, we appreciate uh, the 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 uh, the gift that you've given us, the knowledge that we have attained. Um, stretching your finances. Listen to somebody who's actually done it. Uh, I'm going to share this little bit of light and we're going to end. You can give $1,000 in the $1,000 miracle line and still lose your home. But if you listen to this man of God, you will be not only able to keep your home, but you'll be able to buy your mama a home. So with that being said, God bless, God keep you, God love you.